Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. And this is Episode 7, Equal Rights. Equal Rights, right spelled R-I-T-E-S, is the third Discworld novel published in 1987. It is the first of the Witches series, in that it is about witches and stars Granny Weatherwax. However, like The Color of Magic, it is still heavily centered on more sword and sorcery tropes, and the more familiar versions of the beloved Witches series were not quite worked out yet, so that's why I decided to have you read Weird Sisters first. The main character, Escarina Smith, is actually based on Terry Pratchett's daughter, Rihanna Pratchett. And it comes at this series from a more young adult perspective. In Equal Rights, Drum Billet the Wizard knows that he is dying and wishes to bequeath his power to someone in a nod to Terry Brooks' series, The Sword of Shannara. He arrives in the Linker village of Badass right before the birth of a new wizard, the eighth son of an eighth son. He does so, not realizing that the infant, Escarina Smith, is a girl and dies before he can fix his mistake. Everyone on the disc knows that magic falls along gender lines. Women are witches and men are wizards. But Drum Billet's wizard staff recognizes Esk as a wizard when she is eight years old, and she needs to find a teacher before her uncontrollable power attracts the attention of monsters from the dungeon dimensions. This book is really based on a pretty singular idea that we have talked about before when discussing Terry Pratchett's portrayal of witches and sort of the tension between male and female magic. Just before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear your first thoughts on this book, Nigel. I didn't like it. You didn't like it. Okay, so this is the second one in a row that you haven't liked. I didn't particularly like Color of Magic. I thought Pyramids was boring. I liked parts of this book, but I find it very hard to get into as a trans person. The title kind of spells it out for you. You've got equal rights, you know, like the, a magical right as a play on equal rights, you know, the thing which women fought for centuries for. It, it falls far too much into gender essentialism without really providing any kind of, like, assurances that the author doesn't inherently believe these views and i'm not accusing terry pratchett of being sexist i don't know enough about his work in his personal life to make that claim but in regards equal rights it feels too much like a gender essentialist book even though at the end esk becomes the first female wizard that feels like oh it has to happen and not as an admittance that the gender binary isn't a complete nonsense. Yes, I can definitely see that the whole like wit- women are witches, men are wizards, their magic is very different from each other. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about weird sisters, the difference between the kind of magic that the witches practice in this book and the kind of magic that the men practice, the wizards practice in this book. And actually, this is a pretty common thing for a lot of fantasy, especially that written during the 80s, because we see this also in Wheel of Time, right? Yeah, I was about to say, cough, cough. (laughs) Yes, yeah. There's a lot about, like, women and men access different sides of the one power. We get that in a lot of different fantasy tropes. For me, I actually 
went into reading this book the second time thinking, because this is only the second time I've read it. This was not my favorite when I read it the first time, mainly because for me, it wasn't even about the gender. I was like way too young when I read this to like understand the difference between gender essentialism and and so on and so forth. For me, it was just that I didn't like the version of Granny Weatherwax in this book. Like I was like, okay, this is not like the version of the witches that I really enjoy. And so I just never went back to it. But I went back into this thinking, oh man, this is going to be like really gender essentialist based on the title. And I think that it's very clumsy, but I was actually kind of shocked that there were some scenes in it that to me seemed to try to talk about transness, but in a way that was very clumsy and didn't quite have the vocabulary for it. And I think part of that's because Terry Pratchett was writing this in the 80s and the third wave feminism discourse hadn't really happened yet. We were still having like that second wave Simone de Beauvoir like type of type of conversations. And so for him to try to enter this discourse, he was basically doing what he could with the vocabulary that he had. But it does come across as very, oh, like women who are witches are just as important as men who are wizards and like. You know, you know, like it's still it still kind of comes across that way, mm. but there are definitely some parts of this book where Esk, the main character, has these things to say that seem very genderqueer, if that makes sense. I-, I was curious what you thought about it. I'm obviously not mm. trans. So every time they bring up warlocks, warlocks are, you know, they're male witches or they're female wizards. And oh, that doesn't really count. It feels like so if you read this entirely out of the context of what Terry Pratchett believes as a person and what is happening in the cultural context of the time, it feels like a very bare bones admittance that there exist things outside of the gender binary. But the fact that they keep brushing it off makes it feel like they're kind of like, but it doesn't really count because they're not really one or the other. Depending on your own view of gender, I guess as a cis person, and this is not directed at you, but depending on how you view gender as a cis person, I guess that may be valid, but it's a bit disappointing to see. Like, I'd expect this from J.K. Rowling, obviously. It's a bit weird to see in Terry Pratchett, and granted, obviously, this was written in the 80s. Nothing was really progressive in the 80s. You know, like, what you're... But it's not out and out transphobic. No, not like, like Rowling is. I, I want to be very clear that we're not like endorsing a transphobic no, no, no. book here. <laughs> like obviously this was post Stonewall and stuff. There was still a lot of uh, development that needed to happen in LGBTQ plus awareness. Right. Oh yes, certainly. I I just think about there's this scene. It's in the very beginning of the book where it's talking about how Esk, her brothers are like you know, teasing her, which can I just say I hate her brothers. Like they're they're like the the, the stereotypical worst brothers. She's like thinking about magic and she says, I know what I mean, she told herself. Magic's easy. You just find the place where everything is balanced and push. Anyone could do it. There's nothing magical about it. All the funny words and waving hands, it's just for it's only for she stopped, surprised at herself. She knew what she meant. The idea was right up there in the front of her mind, but she didn't know how to say the words even to herself. It was a horrible feeling to find things in your head and not know how they fitted. There's just these like very brief moments like that where I'm like, he's on the edge of it. Like he's like so close to 
actually saying the thing about gender, to actually talking about gender queerness and talking about a girl who has these male powers, right? Mm. Or these traditionally considered male powers. But he can't quite get there. He's still really stuck in this, like, second wave formulation of gender. Like, that's that's how it read to me. And that might also be because I know that he does better with trans characters later. I could be, like, projecting, like, he's trying, but he's not quite getting there in this book like he does later. I don't know. Escarina feels the most, like, genderqueer of the protagonists we met, obviously. And from what I can remember of Tiffany Aching, she's a lot more tomboy-coded. In the sense that she's very, like, get to, get done, bosh. But, like, she's also raised by a much older caterer of witches, you know, including Granny Weatherwax. So, the world has developed, and also Terry Pratchett's both views and ability to express ideas around gender queerness. So, it feels more natural around, you know, later protagonists like Tiffany. But, I don't know, like, I mean, I, it has been... Ooh, uh, seven years since I read the last Tiffany Aching book I read, so I could be completely wrong. Mort was cishet, as was Rincewind. The witches, they're cis, but they're not het. Do, I don't want to think about the or- orientation of Tepech. That's his name. I had completely forgotten the name <laughs> of the protagonist of the last book we discussed. <laughs> There's one other place where it kind of became apparent to me as well. The Pratchett or the narrator or whoever was trying to hint at this, but maybe didn't quite get there. And that's later in the book after she has this very unsettling conversation with Tretel, who is also terrible. Oh, um, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, this very like patriarchal, he very misogynistic. Mansplain something to you in a club. Oh, yes, 100%. So have you seen the film Ladybird? Yeah, when it came out. The scene at the very beginning of Lady Bird where she just exits the car because she can't handle yes. what her mom is. Do- and she just like, this is basically what I imagine that Esk does <laughs> to the car. She just like jumps out of the caravan and runs away because she cannot handle Treadle mansplaining what wizards and witches are to her. She says, why was it that when she heard Granny ramble on about witchcraft, she longed for the cutting magic of wizardry? But whenever she heard Treadle speak in his high-pitched voice, she would fight to the death for witchcraft. She'd be both, or none at all, and the more they intended to stop her, the more she wanted it. She'd be a witch and a wizard, too, and she would show them. That was the other scene. There, It's just those two that I've read where I really felt like he's, he's trying. He's trying to say something about gender queerness here. That, to me, came across as very, like, non-binary. Like, she doesn't feel like she has to choose mm. one category for herself or the other. Like, she feels affinity for both. Yeah, it's like gender fluidness. It's almost like more of a gender fluid approach to magic than it is towards what we would traditionally associate with gender mm. in on the planet Earth, if that makes sense. It really felt like, and I do want to talk about the feminism of this sort of divorced from transness, because that's kind of what Terry Pratchett is doing in in parts of this. It's a girl boss story. It's a very girl boss story without really interrogating why the genders are the way they are or what actually would happen if somebody could access the different kinds of power or what does that mean, etc. 
But those two parts, to me, felt like someone who wanted to say something about gender but lacked the vocabulary to do so and then ends up sort of falling back on these more traditional second wave fantasy molds of what gender is. Does that make sense at all? I mean, again, I'm cis, so I might not have the same reaction to this particular book as you or any of my other trans friends. Mm. But to me, when I read it, I was like, okay, I was really expecting this to be a clear cut case of gender essentialism. And then I know that Terry Pratchett kind of grows out of that and becomes a lot more nuanced and more straightforward in his depictions of trans people. But I actually wasn't prepared for it to be maybe a little bit more messy than I thought it was going to be. Because definitely, like, the expectation is this is going to be, like, a YA, you know, like, oh, realize the power inside of yourself, girl boss moment. But I think it gets bogged down in the whole question of can someone who is assigned female at birth be a wizard? It spends so much time doing that that I don't think it really achieves the, don't want to say girl bossness, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, yeah. No, I understand that. Because another one of my problems with the book is that it takes so long to do anything. Like, this is a very short book by Discworld standards, even. Over halfway through, and they're still not, like, at Ankh-Morpork, you know? And so everything else has to happen then in the, like, last third of the book. There's a lot of, like, Escarina being the hero who's born in a small town, who's not really understood, and then she has to, like, leave the world, go on her quest with her mentor, Granny Weatherwax. This all feels very, like, traditional fantasy, Mm. but it doesn't seem very urgent, right? Even though we're being told that her power is unstable, which, by the way, the scenes in the town that they're at... I'm trying to remember the name of the town, the first town they get to where she's like wandering through and like all of these like magical hijinks are happening around her. That was pretty funny. I thought I found that to be charming. Mm. There's not a lot of urgency. We're told her power's unstable. We're, we're told that that much power attracts things from outside the universe that want to be real, who want that want to come into the Discworld universe. We've seen this before, right? In... The Light Fantastic, specifically. But it doesn't seem like they're in a hurry. (laughs) Like, it doesn't seem like they're they're all that necessarily interested in Esk. They're more interested in Simon as a character. Yeah. Like, despite the fact that the Lord of the Rings, like, after after Gandalf leaves uh, Bilbo and says he's got to go check something out about the ring, and before Frodo sets out for Bree to meet Gandalf, like, there is an interval of... Over a decade, where he waits for Gandalf, basically. Or, like, around that. But yet, it still feels more urgent than this book, which takes place... In the space of, like, I'd say a month. A month tops, if you, you know, like, if you include all the time that Granny Weatherwax spends looking for Esk after she ends up on the boat. Which, that was my other problem with this book. I would love to hear what you think about them. My problem with the book was, like, weird, almost ableism see because it's not ableism but it's not very good disability rep in simon you know with how his right. stutter is portrayed 
Actually, I don't know. I I don't want to, like, say the wrong thing. I don't actually know the difference between a stutter and a stammer. But whatever it is, it's not portrayed very well. It's portrayed in that, like, stereotypical way of, like, what everyone imagines a speech impediment is like. But, it, it, like, it rarely is like that in real life. But, again, I think this this is something, like, it's the 80s and that's just how things, unfortunately, were. It feels very much like... Are you aware of the 1976 BBC adaptation of I, Claudius? No, I am not. Okay, it's such a good show. It's based off of a book from, like, I think the 40s or whatever by Robert Graves, where he basically took the lives of the Roman emperors from Augustus up to Claudius. Like, it's Emperor Claudius writing his biography, and he basically like included every negative story that he could find in history and just put them all in one of the things which made people you know not take claudius seriously was that he had a lot of disabilities you know he was slightly lame he ha- and one of the main things was he had a, a a stammer and it's portrayed in the series but he's portrayed by Derek Jacoby and the oh it's just it's a good show overall, but it definitely like falls into the pitfall of being something made in the 70s, <laughs> you know? You can't always escape your time, and that's not an excuse for bad representation. It's difficult sometimes when you look back at something that's trying to be progressive, and it's like, oh, you still can't escape where when you were made. It also falls into the same stereotype of how speech impediments are portrayed. It's what I associated with when I was reading it. Well, and Simons is cured at the end of the novel. Yeah, it's just magically Right, he cured. no longer has it. Yeah, yeah, he suddenly is able to talk in a quote-unquote normal way. Yeah, and the way they brush it off so, so, like, it's so blasé the way they brush it off. This annoys me a lot in... Fantasy, fantasy especially, because there's a lot you can do in fantasy with, you know, taking away things that a character has. And I'm not saying give your character a disability just for the sake of it, but I think, like, narrative-wise, if your character is disabled or becomes disabled through... Sorry, this is completely off the record. Am I saying stuff which sounds very, very ableist? No, no, it tackles the problem of representation, which is difficult. And disability representation has such a fraught history in terms of it's okay to have characters that are just disabled. There are plenty of people who are just disabled. But when you start using them in ways where their disability means something, like it means that they're evil or it means that they're worthy of pity or they're supposed to provoke something in the main character to show us how compassionate the main character is or whatever that's when we start to get into like problematic territory i agree with you i don't think simon's representation of someone with a stutter or a stammer is particularly bad i mean listeners who have a stutter or a stammer correct us if we're wrong but it's not particularly great either especially because of the imperative to be cured by the end of it Yeah. Like, some people just have stutters and stammers, and it's fine. I also think it's a little weird that everybody keeps, like, finishing his sentences because they're not, like, waiting for him to 
mm. to talk. And that just seems very, like, patronizing. Yeah, because they feel they know what he's going to say. Uh, yeah. But he's not an evil person, which I was a little afraid of when the book starts to make it clear that the Dungeon Dimension creatures are attracted to him, right? Because he has this view of the universe where everything is just ideas, right? The universe yeah. exists because we imagine it to exist and that there are all these other universes, you know, the multiverse. And that's what gives them their ability to come in to the Discworld through him, sort of as a conduit. I was afraid they were going to make him evil because disability often is a metaphor for evil. Like a physical disability is supposed to represent like a moral failing of some kind. And I'm really glad that that did not happen. That he was just a victim, I guess, in this situation, just like Esk is. Obviously, like, this has happened a lot, you know, for centuries and stuff. This portrayal of disability is evil. And I was thinking about, like, what's the earliest example of, you know, this, I don't know, like... I mean, older than the Cyclops. You mean from, like, the Odyssey? Yeah. You get a lot of disabled people. That didn't even occur to me. My thought was Long John Silver from Treasure Island. Yeah, that is a good example of it. Um, you, I mean, there's a lot of different, like, disability tropes. Disabled people as evil is a big one, but also I always think of it as the Tiny Tim from A Christmas Carol. Like, the disabled, especially children and women, like, disabled children and women who are there to, like, cause character growth in the main character. They're not really there to be anything but, like, this innocent, disabled person that needs to be taken care of and saved by the main character. Yeah. So, at least that didn't happen here. Yeah, that's a relief, you know, <laughs> even, <laughs> even though there's a lot that I didn't like about this book, that's at least, you know, they didn't do one bad thing, so, woo. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the feminism in this, because there were things I liked about it and things I didn't like about it. So let's talk first about one of the things I didn't like. Putting aside the gender essentialism, well, I guess it's not putting aside it, because it still kind of has to do with that. Putting aside even, like, the transgender queer aspect of it, we get, like, this very, very hard line, like I said, between the magic that witches do and the magic that wizards do. And when I read this, I realized... I'm so conflicted about this because on the one hand, I kind of get it that what we're being told here is that women, because they're not allowed a lot of power, find these ways to have power within communities that they wouldn't otherwise have. So like Granny Weatherwax, you know, we've talked about this when it comes to Weird Sisters. She does her headology, right? It's very community-based. It's very empathy-based. She does have like what we would think of as more traditional magical power, but she prefers to not use it in the same way that wizards would use it. And we also see her borrowing in this book, which I don't remember if she does borrowing in Weird Sisters. I, maybe a little bit, but the borrowing is going to become very important later. Mm. And we see other witches who are just sort of like, they're on the edges of society, right? Like they can't operate in public because that makes people nervous, but everybody kind of slinks up to them, right? For their potions or their herbs or their medicine. I was actually shocked to realize this. There's even a part where it's implied that Granny Weatherwax and the other witches provide abortions for women, yeah. which I thought that was a pretty cool 
thing to say. Like, I mean, Terry Pratchett is a native of the British Isles, and so the <laughs> tradition of witches and wise women, like, especially here in Ireland, like, I really connected to how they portray headology because it definitely, like, it definitely feels like old Irish, like, mythology and belief because, and I'm not saying this as a trope, you, you know, you do have sometimes a wise woman or a man who has the cure, you know, of laying hands on and he can heal burns, the touch. I've been to one of those men, actually. But it's definitely is more headology. And I don't really think it's a thing in America in the same sense that it was in England and over here. No, we don't think of women that way. (laughs) That's like a very different way of viewing women. Is it a bad one? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, like in the U.S., we're more of the witches are evil because we come from puritanical roots in this in this culture. I don't know whether it's a thing in America. The the concept of a cut wife. If you've watched Penny Dreadful, the original one, you know what a cut wife is because they go. That's where um Eva Green's character goes to train with in the flashbacks in season two. But it was a wise woman who was generally reviled by society, but was kept around because she could provide herbs and services for abortion. Hence the name Cutwife. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of that here. Why I'm so conflicted about this was because on the one hand, I love this portrayal of witches' magic. And I loved it in Weird Sisters. I'm going to continue to love it in the witches' books. In general, this idea that witches are so much more plugged into their communities and they do so much good and it's not always the obvious like flashbang you know type of Mm. magic but it's it's still magic and and the idea that like helping someone have an abortion is just as magical as you know setting someone on fire or causing a tree to grow or borrowing right which is something that she does quite often where i become conflicted about it is where they're like oh well that's that's witch's magic and then wizard magic which is like more male centric that's math. That's academia. That's learning the balance of the universe, right? Like the mm. the Brandon Sanderson, like when you change something, there's going to be a reaction. Or if you push something, there's going to be a reaction. That's, Tessa, that's, that's not that, Sanderson. That's Newton. <laughs> well, yeah, but he's using it for like his magic system. Yeah. What does she say? It's, it's geometry, right? It's, it's Men's magic is geometry. This is where I get conflicted because it sounds like he's almost saying, oh, well, women aren't good at math. <laughs> like, like women aren't good at STEM. And that kind of ignores well, I mean, all not. the ways in. Well, yeah. I mean, plenty of women aren't good at math and plenty of men aren't good no, at no, math. No, no. It's just like, wow, of, so yeah. relatable. I'm a woman and I can't do maths. <laughs> right. This view of it kind of ignores all the ways in which women have systemically been kept out of those particular fields. Yeah. Cough, cough, Ada Lovelace. Yeah, this book doesn't really want to address that. It wants to talk about gender imbalances and the way that one type of magic is valued over another type of magic, but it doesn't want to talk about the ways in which that magic is only male because it's been reserved for male practitioners, and anyone who's tried to practice it has been, like, stamped out or burned or pushed away, you know? That to me is where I get really conflicted about this book and in future books too when this comes up, although it's never it, it's never going to come up in the way that it does in this book. 
again, but the tension will always be there between the wizards and witches. It just sort of softens a bit, becomes a little bit more messy, which I appreciate. Maybe that's my problem here, is this all seems too simple. It's too neat in what he's trying to say. It's not trying to actually dig into the reasons for why this is. It's just kind of like, oh, sexism. That's the answer, right? Well, yeah, but like, there's a lot of ways in which that sexism manifests. It's not just somebody woke up one day and decided that that was so. Because even like after Esk goes to perform magic in front of Codangal the first time, and they laugh her out of it. You know, like, the way that um, Granny and the Housekeeper... That sounds like a weird band, like Jerry and the Pacemakers, Granny and the uh, Housekeepers. (laughs) They say, oh, there is a way into the Unseen Academy for women, and it's like going into the domestic chores. What is the word I'm looking for? It's not admin. Domestic labor. Yeah, domestic Domestic labor, labor, I guess. Yeah, it's going into being like a maidservant. And that's just like, saying, oh, it's fucked up, you know, it's a bit redundant because we know it's fucked up. We know sexism is bad, don't we? Uh, Don't we, Tessa? Uh (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It feels like the book is hitting us over the head with, like, this is bad because this is not what Esk wants and it's not what Esk needs. You know sexism is bad, right? That's what I feel like the book is doing. Yeah. Because it's offered to us with this wink, because Esk doesn't realize what Granny is offering. So it's offered to Esk with a wink, and offered to us, the readers, with a wink, because we also know. Right, and Esk doesn't seem to get it, right? And, like, Esk doesn't even really suffer for it in the way that so many women suffer Mm. from being relegated to the domestic labor force. That was something I actually really appreciated was the portrayal of, oh yeah, the men and these wizards get to live these like comfy lives because there's this army of women who are like feeding them and cleaning up after them and keeping the Unseen University running. And I love that because people never value that kind of labor. They never do. And it's so disproportionately put on women to do this. So I appreciated that aspect of it. But Esk doesn't even suffer like so many women do when told like, oh, well, you can have a job dusting, right? Because the staff does it for her. Mm. Like the staff does all the work and she does it all by magic. And there have been so many women who haven't had the luxury of a magical staff who've literally had to like camp out in classrooms like she does to learn anything because that's just the way that that system is set up. So I appreciated how Terry Pratchett was like trying to talk about domestic labor and how it's unnecessarily gendered and how it's often very gendered. But at the same time, it doesn't seem to mean anything to the main character of the book. It means something to Granny, but it doesn't mean anything to Esk. And then I suppose this is the time to like bring up the like the gender thing. The staff is, it's the most phallic symbol you could go with. Yes. You Talk know. to us about the staff. My whole thing was just like, it's just a big penis metaphor. You know? And that's what staffs yeah. always are, really. I don't want to get into the Da Vinci Code thing where he's talking about, like, the the, the pyramid points and stuff being symbols for male reproduction and, the like, the chalices because that's just bullshit and more gender essentialism. But, like... A staff is a very visible reminder, both in real life and in this story more so, that like of what men's power is. 
because even in like outside right. of Discworld, wizards are or wizards are always portrayed with a staff. Witches are not. Witches get a broom, which is kind of similar, but not. Can I say that brooms are cooler than witch than staffs? In they, my opinion, <laughs> they are. But a broom ties a a female practitioner of magic to the domestic. Just a whole other thing to go into why people think that witches rode brooms, and it's to do with ergot poisoning. And I don't want to get into it because <laughs> it's fucking weird. <laughs> Look it up in your own time. I will not be mentioning it on the podcast. I love that we get Grady Weatherwax's broomstick's origin story <laughs> in this <sighs> book. That was probably my favorite part because I had completely forgotten about it. And it was fun after reading Weird Sisters and all of that with her broomstick. And because it's not normal. Like, she keeps pretending like it's normal to have this broomstick that you have to, like, run around with and, like, get a, like, head start on it to get it to work. But obviously, Magrats and Nanny Ogs don't work that way. (laughs) And so, like, I love that she didn't actually have it. When she was in Lanker in Badass, that she got it from a friend and then had these dwarves repair it. <laughs> or they tried to do a good job, but it just wasn't a very good broom. It's like the car that some people like refuse to let go of because like it's a perfectly good car, but honestly, like you would be better off just like throwing the entire thing away and starting over. <laughs> you know, it's the quintessential old person scooter. Yes! They're not Vespas, but whatever they are. You know, like the little mobility scooters that they ride? It's that, but you've just adapted it to be for witches. Yeah, how everyone's always like, isn't it supposed to be going faster? Isn't it supposed to be higher off the ground? Yeah. Oh, gosh, that made me laugh. I, I To go back to your staff thing, though, I do think it's funny that she has to disguise it as a broomstick in order to hang on to it, because people keep trying to take it away from her. Mm. which may also be, like, a very, very subtle, clumsy trans metaphor as well. Yeah. Like, oh, girls aren't supposed to have this. It's, I mean, it doesn't have to be trans. It could also just be about the way that women are socialized to not, like, oh, you don't want to play with a truck, you want to play with a doll, right? I read that as more so, like, obviously this wasn't really in the vocabulary or lexicon when Pratchett was writing this, but it, it's very much like the being able to present as a gender so you can actually, like, participate in society without being discriminated against. Right. You know that fun thing that trans people have to do on the daily? But yeah, like, it definitely reads in today's culture as, like, an allegory for passing. Yeah. She realizes nobody's going to, like, let her just carry around the staff, but if she, as soon as she makes it into a broom... Suddenly, nobody questions Yeah, why she has it. Yeah, because, oh, it makes sense that a woman should have a broom, either magical or not. And before we move on from the feminism and the gender stuff of this book, I do, I'm not going to read any of it because I already read a passage of it in the episode on Weird Sisters, but this book is definitely a extension of his speech from 1985, Why Gandalf Never Married. So if you're interested in what he was kind of thinking about gender and magic at the time, would recommend reading it. Again, I already read a little bit of it in Weird Sisters, so I don't want to retread it again. But that might be something that might give you a little hint into some of the stuff he was thinking about at this point. Before we completely move on to the Unseen University, though, Granny Weatherwax. 
How did we feel about the portrayal of her in this book? This is the first book that she was in, right? But it's not the first book that we've read her in. Were there a lot of differences that you noticed? Did it seem like it was still the same character? It felt like nearly a different character. It feels like my view on Rincewind in The Color of Magic, as opposed to like every other appearance he has in later books, and Death as well. Because like this is the first witch's book. So you had two with Rincewind, and then we went straight into this one. And especially because like you have to read Color of Magic and the Light Fantastic as one story that just happens to be split. It's really the second Discworld book. Another proof of concept, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of how it feels like to me, too. Proof of concept is a really good way to describe this book. Yeah, but then it's really weird because then you go straight into Mort, which is, like, so good. And so much more of, like, a crystallization of what we understand death to be in the Discworld. Like, specifically for that character, but also just for, like, what Discworld is in terms of how it's formatted with the footnotes and how the humor works and how the narrative works. It's really weird then to have these three, two or three books, depending on how you classify them, and then go into more. It's really weird, that jump. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that because we're reading them out of publication order. But yeah, it does go straight from this into Mort, which seems a lot more fully formed. And I think a lot of the books after this are more fully formed than some of these earlier books are, the first three. Mm. Granny Weatherwax in this book just, she is almost there. Like she has some of the trademark things that we think of when it comes to Granny Weatherwax. She's fiercely independent. She's like that old lady that just has this overweening sense of confidence. She's got, well, we talked about this before. It's a very self-assuredness that can border on narcissism, but it's more like she just is very competent and she likes to assume that everyone else is competent around her as well. So we get that attitude. Yeah, like they say in this one, you know, that like, She always knows where she is. It just happens that the rest of the world around her is lost. Yes. (laughs) Or the part I laughed so hard at the part where she said, if you can't, if you can learn to ride an elephant, but can't, you can learn to ride a horse. And Esk's dad asks her, what's an elephant? And she said, it's a kind of badger because she hadn't gotten where she was by admitting ignorance. Yeah. I laughed very hard at that part. One of the best parts of this book was the depiction of her borrowing, the way that she rides the minds of animals and how she takes care of them. I loved that description. She's not just like, oh, well, I'm just going to ride the mind of this eagle now. Like she gives it food afterwards, right? Like, and she's like got this owl that like lives in her house. You know, it's, it's all of these different animals that she's really connected to. And she uses, you know, she rides their mind. She doesn't take over them. She just, you know, rests on them so she can see through their eyes. And, of course, the children also find her at one point and think that she's dead, which is, like, a really common recurrence. And it's the basis of a very funny joke later in the series. But other than that, I don't know. It This just didn't seem right to me. And I don't know if it's because the whole scene with her and Ankh Morpork, especially her relationship with Cut Angle, seemed really bizarre to me. And honestly, like, this is kind of retconned. This never gets talked about again. I mean, I think they maybe mention that she's been to Ankh-Morpork before in a later book, but they don't 
talk about the ways in which she interacts with the wizards here. They don't talk about the ways in which she interacts with the housekeeper, the way that she's almost thinking about setting up shop in Ogmore Pork, and it never really explains how she gets back to Lanker in the later books. But also, like, it's where have I heard Cut Angle before? Because when I read it, the name was familiar to me. I don't remember. There will be an Arch-Chancellor who ends up being, like, a more regular character later, but the first few books have, like, a different Arch-Chancellor almost every single book. It's supposed to be, like, a reference to the fact that the wizards, at this point in the Discworld history, they rise in rank by killing other wizards. And so it's supposed to be, like, this is a very dangerous job to have. Although, by all accounts, Codangle dies peacefully. According to the wiki. We'll have to continue along on the storyline to see what happens. Hi, and welcome to Arch-Chancellor Cut Angle's book club. <laughs> I'm hesitant to say I liked him because he's, his function in the story is a bastion of the paradigm of privilege. And of course, at the end, like he admits Esk to the university because he has to for narrative reasons. And then also like we get his POV for his thoughts. And it's like, oh, it would look really good if I did it. So, like, you have to take it on one hand. But I really (laughs) liked, I don't know, I really enjoyed his banter with Granny. To an extent, the duel is so cool. Where they're just, like, turning into different animals to try. And, like, one of them becomes, like, a a pit of bubbling tar. It reminded me a lot of the 1963 animated film The Sword in the Stone. Yes. Where Merlin and Morgana, yeah, where they have their shape-shifting battle as well. Arch-Chancellor Cutangle is pretty sure that Granny was going to win. Like, he admits that. The wizards in this are also kind of like the stereotype, well, like, the stereotype you associate with British people, especially British men, which is that they're, like, incapable of talking about sex, you know? Yes. You know, so, like, that's... You know, that's another thing where it's like, oh, he's like this because he has to be. This joke will come up again, and it is my least favorite Terry Pratchett joke. I'm just going to throw that out there, where he's on the broom with her, and like, there's the joke about where he's holding her. Oh, yeah. On the broom. I hate that. I, it's such a, I, you know, Terry Pratchett, he can do high and low humor, and I usually laugh at the low humor, but that just, to me, I was like, okay, that's not funny. Like, I just don't. No. I don't find it necessary, especially because so much of their banter is actually pretty good. Yeah, you know, where, you know, like, shouldn't the broom be going faster? And then, you know, where she says, like, it would be going faster if we didn't have your big fat arse on it, basically. <laughs> he just doesn't seem like much of a character to me. He just seems very, like, patriarchal big dude in charge. Yeah. I was searching for my into Nigel quotes the mountain goats every single episode yay is this it so i was like how how can i associate it with it and then the whole reason that like it's implied that they don't they never like fulfill their relationship is because he can't accept the fact that you can't cross the same river twice this idea and that's a lyric from rain in soho the first single off of the mountain goats 2017 album goths yeah here we go no morning colder than the first frost no friends closer than the ones we've lost nothing sharper than a serpent's tooth nothing harder than the gospel truth 
Though you repent and don sackcloth and try to make nice, you can't cross the same river twice. There you go, Sam. There you go. There's the, the mountain goats quote. And what you're referring to, it's, it's honestly probably the best scene with Cut Angle when they're talking about going home again and how Cut Angle says that he went home once to, because he came from a place near where Granny Weatherwax lived. So he came from somewhere near, either in or near Lanker. When he went home, it's very much he no longer fit in because he'd been sort of educated out of, you know, this place and he had had all these other experiences. You know, he says, they treated me like a king, but I mean, I've been to places and seen things that would curdle their minds. I've faced down creatures wilder than their nightmares. I know secrets that are known to a very few. You felt left out, said Granny. There's nothing strange in that. It happens to all of us. It was our choice. Wizards should never go home, said Cut Angle. I don't think they can go home, agreed Granny. You can't cross the same river twice, I always say. Cut Angle gave this some thought. I think you're wrong there, he said. I must have crossed the same river, oh, thousands of times. Ah, but it wasn't the same river. It wasn't? No. Cut Angle shrugged. It looked like the same bloody river. No need to take that tone, said Granny. I don't see why I should listen to that sort of language from a wizard who can't even answer letters. That, to me, was the most development we get out of Cut Angle as a character. That and the scene where he and Granny smoke together right after the battle, that was also a pretty good scene. Yeah, because I think this is, like, an actual tangible example of the two ways in which Terry Pratchett does jokes in Discworld. So Cut Angle is is assuming the position that we've taken this saying and we have applied the rules of strict harsh logic to it where well what does it mean of course you can cross the same river twice because there's a finite number of rivers in the world you know if you make repeated journeys it will more than likely take you across one of them whereas the other way the disc world does jokes and i say jokes to differentiate between observational humor and banter and other things or like and like footnote humor the other way that he does jokes then is well, what if we take this saying and then we, like, extrapolate, go at it with, like, the complete nonsense, you know? Like, what if we made a, a complete farce out of the assumed structures of the real world, like, in Surance and things like that? <laughs> yes. What did you think of the journey to Unseen University that Esk and Granny Weatherwax take? I didn't really care because I was like, just get to Ankh Morpork already. I'm kind of jonesing to get back to Ankh Morpork whenever I can. I really like Ankh Morpork. 65% is, I want to get back to Ankh Morpork, and 35% is like, I'd like you to reach Ankh Morpork before the end of the book, preferably. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. Esk's journey was interesting on the surface. Like, I thought it was cool that she had gotten on this basically river barge with these river people but then when you like stop and go like hey let's examine a hot second then you're like oh oh no <laughs> yeah so uh mm. it would have been bad enough if they were the zunes and then they were characterized in the way that they're characterized which they're like these brown river people who are very honest, except for they have their one liar who is the one who like does all the trading negotiations and he's the only one who can lie. But there's like this very like shiftiness about them, which 
for any of you who have studied like any kind of racial stereotype, you know exactly what this is in reference to. It would have been bad enough if that was the case, but then he actually does say the slur twice in this book. And I don't think that most people realized it was a slur in the 80s. Yeah. But it is now, and it was very uncomfortable for me to read that section. It's very much in the vein of how the Egyptians are characterized in his dark materials, or, you know... Yes! To a lesser extent, obviously, the Oompa Loompas in the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which, it's a film I love, but it's also, like, the Oompa Loompas in it are based on, like, extremely awful stereotypes. Yeah. It's that same vein where you're just like, oh no, why did you have to, like, why did you have to do that? Yeah, it's not from Russia with love, but it's not great either. It's not, and they're not developed, they're just kind of a, we had to have a people who were on the river, and because of that, we're gonna make them Romani adjacent. That's kind of what it felt like, very lazy. And that's not to say that you can't have Romani-like people in fantasy, just develop them and don't rely on stereotypes. Yeah, this is a thing. Why do fantasy stories have to rely so heavily on, like, obviously, it makes sense, and I'm not critiquing having them in, the like, the these roving uh, itinerant people, basically, you know, who they travel around in a caravan, but, like, Ireland has a large Romani population. Both Romani and uh, Minkor people. This whole, like, perception of them and the way they're portrayed in fantasy stories is, like, rarely ever positive. It's always twinged with this kind of xenophobia and, like, they're, you know, like, they're basically written like, oh, they're so weird, aren't they? That they're, you know, they keep to themselves and they've got their own custom. And, like, in the case of Minkor people, uh, especially, I don't know too much about um, Romani, but uh, pre- presumably they have their own language as well. Like the Minkor people have specific cants of the Irish uh, language that's theirs and theirs alone. And you're not really meant to use those dialects if you're not a member of them. You know, like they're like closed systems in religious faith. That was just a weird thing where it's like, this is a trope that happens far too often. And it's now far too ingrained in fantasy to, like, stop. But can we please? But can we please? Yeah. I I can say this was in the 80s and we weren't having nuanced conversations about this in the 80s. But His Dark Materials is much later than the 80s and is still doing this, essentially. We can't keep saying it was the 80s. Obviously, right. we're, we're not excusing it. But, like, you just can't chalk it up to, oh, it was the 80s. because. Especially with this, it's a thing that keeps happening. Yes, I completely, completely agree with you. But that's the only way that I can frame this, is that it's like, it's stereotyping and it's lazy, but it's not necessarily mean-spirited. But again, that hasn't stopped it from happening over and over again in fantasy, like you've mentioned. Yeah. So the other thing that I love about this book, though, is the Dungeon Dimensions, which is something that got introduced in Light Fantastic. We get it here again. I really love the, like, place that they go where all of the creatures are, I guess, for lack of a better word, the, like, desert that's, like, cold. I thought that that was a really interesting 
landscape for this particular thing. And like the way that it's used to signal that the dungeon dimensions are encroaching on the disc world is that she f- can feel herself in that place occasionally and then she eventually goes to that place because there's no real antagonist in this book besides the dungeon dimensions and the creatures that live within yeah i i like the their portrayal in equal rights more than i did in the light fantastic because we get this more concrete idea of what they are because in the Light Fantastic, they're being channeled through... Oh, what's his name? Tryman. Tryman, yes. Whose name is too similar to Treetle for my liking. <laughs> but yeah, so they're being channeled through... Uh, they're being channeled through Trimon. So we have them shown through the prism of apparent humanity, which is a thing Lovecraft likes to do an awful lot, which is, you know, give monsters... Uh, and eldritch beings, you know, like, the appearance, the semblance of humanity, but, like, something is slightly off. You know, like, there's that passage where, in The Light Fantastic, where they talk about how Trimon doesn't, you know, like, it doesn't resemble anything like a human anymore. But this is much more, like, cold, uncompromising alien. And the fact that they're in a cold desert outside of reality, and the different realities, then, are contained within glass prisms and pyramids and stuff like it's very much like alien mothership type vibes did you notice the earth call out in there too because there he's so simon who's been taken by the dungeon dimensions creatures is sitting in the middle of this desert and there's all these like balls and pyramids and stuff that all contain representations of the different universes right the disc world being the, the key one but one of the universes is a crystal sphere that has a blue-green ball in it, crisscrossed with tiny white cloud patterns and what could have almost been continents if anyone was silly enough to try to live on a ball. It might have been a sort of model, except everything about its glow told Esk that it was quite real, and probably very big, and not in every sense totally inside the sphere. And then we get to see like these other glimpses, like one of them is like the Idrisil, the tree right universe and then another one is the ouroboros the snake that eats its own tail but i just love that that there's like this if anyone would be silly enough to live on a sphere like that's silly although the silly (laughs) people today imagine that we live on a disc i don't think terry pratchett had quite realized that flat earth was going to be a thing in the the 2000s When I saw the Ouroboros reference, I just thought they were referencing Norse myth again with um, Jormungandir, the the serpent which encircles the world. Like, he circles all of Midgard and bites his own tail then. Oh, that's quite possible, too. Now that I'm stopping to think about it, the Ouroboros is not exclusively, you know, a Norse construct. I'm actually going to look up. Obviously, the word is Greek, I think. Uh, Yeah, is an emblematic serpent of ancient Egypt and Greece. Yeah, represented with a te- its tail and smell continually devouring itself and being reborn from itself. Yeah, it entered Western tradition via ancient Egyptian iconography and the Greek magical tradition. It was adopted as a symbol in Gnosticism and Hermeticism, and most notably in alchemy. I guess there's your tie to geometry. Um, and how geometry. Alchemy- yeah, geometry. I love that. I, d- I-, I was just repeating it because I love saying it. Geometry. The way the word is written makes you, like, 
visualize how it's spat out. It's a word which isn't said, it's spat out. Oh, it's geometry. Yes, geometry. And you can you can hear Granny Weatherwax saying that too. You'd say it in the same way that like English people would say, Oh, it's stupid. Sorry, not to call out English people again. I mean, I feel like that's that's part of this show too. It's like you have to do mountain goats and you have to call out English people. I also really loved all the references to the, the fabric, denim or possibly flannelette of the universe. Yeah. To tie back into the dungeon dimensions, there's this great passage in my book where it's right before she is taken by the dungeon dimensions people. Or no, it's right before Simon is taken by the dungeon dimensions people in the library. Horror can steal into the mind via all the senses. There's the sound of the little meaningful chuckle in the locked dark room. The sight of a half a caterpillar in your fork full of salad. The curious smell from the lodger's bedroom. The taste of a slug in the cauliflower cheese. Touch doesn't normally get a look in. But something happened to the floor under Esk's hands. She looked down, her face a rictus of horror, because the dusty floorboard suddenly felt very gritty and dry and very, very cold. There was a fine silver sand between her fingers. For me, that was like a perfect, it was jokey, it was funny, and yet it was still very dread inspiring because all of those images are horror inducing <laughs> like half a caterpillar in your salad Ugh. yeah it's like the old the old joke was worse than finding a worm in your apple finding half a worm exactly so we also get one of your favorite characters very briefly the librarian yes i was very happy they definitely are leaning more and more into the use of the word ponderous. <laughs> this is my goal. Is just my goal with this show is just to like increase the global use of the word ponderous. In the same way that Phineas and Ferb raise cultural awareness for what the aglet is. The aglet, yes. Esk considers borrowing the mind of the Great Atuan and. She realizes no, because it's too slow and ponderous. And I'm pretty sure they use the actual word ponderous in it. But it's so funny because the people in the Unseen University in The Light Fantastic had people trying to read Atuan's mind, and they're there for ages because his thoughts are so slow. And Esk thinks about trying to borrow the great Atuan's mind in this book, but then is like, no, <laughs> I am not going to yeah. do that. I thought that was a great callback. And then as well, like, how the mind of the university works. It's this silicate mind, which is far older and far more complex than any human mind. And it reminded me of the troll, the rock troll, as described when it wakes up in The Life Fantastic again. How it talks about impulses moving up silicate uh, nerve pathways and stuff. Esk uses it. You, she borrows the university's mind after she sees Granny do it earlier. To open the door that has been, like, sealed shut. Yeah, I, I liked that. That was really good. Speaking of borrowing, we haven't really talked about what you thought of the concept or the scene where Esk gets too far attached to the eagle because she's borrowing the eagle and then she tries to take control and Granny has to, like, bring her back, basically. Her mind loses its shape in the eagle's mind. That was one of my favorite parts in the entire book. Well, like, borrowing in general. 
I think was probably one of my favorite things. Borrowing Granny Weatherwax's battle and how the dungeon dimension creatures are described and that whole like sequence. Those are my favorite things about the book. But like the way he describes borrowing and becoming is really like beautifully written. And then oh, I'm a sucker for becoming, but being unable to unbecome. And how he talks about losing your mind and how the the minds are these separate colors and they become wrapped around one another and stuff. And it's like, well, no, you didn't inhabit the mind of an eagle. You became an eagle. And I'm sure it, like if we hadn't gotten you unstuck, you know, you would have just been an eagle who occasionally dreamt of walking on land. Yeah, I loved that bit where it talked about like if you know how you sometimes dream of flying, well, you would have been eagle that would have sometimes dreamed of walking. Yeah, I thought that was wonderful. Can I just say as well, I did not appreciate the, all these references to this nanny and apple. No, give me nanny og or give me death. Give me nanny og. Yes, I was gonna say. So that's the other thing that I don't like about this book is that I almost think that Granny Weatherwax needs nanny og. They're in a queer platonic relationship. Oh, it's true. To a lesser extent, she also needs Magrat, and there's another younger witch that'll come along later that I also think that she needs. But Nannyog and Granny Weatherwax are ride or die. You can't almost have the character of Granny Weatherwax without the Nanny Og. Like, it's a dynamic that works so well together, and it almost seems wrong to have mm. them separated. Tessa, I'm going to pitch you an idea. All right, let's hear it. Granny, Weatherwax, Nanny, Og, Thelma, and Louise. Yes, 100%. Final answer. Would watch. That reminds me as well of I wanted to pitch a potential Discworld. Th- it, it occurred to me in a flash of brilliance. <laughs> I don't know how aware you are of, like, adaptations of Charles Dickens. I'm fairly well aware. Dickens is my dad's favorite author, so I know a lot more about him than I probably should. Okay, are you aware of Dickensian? Yes. Yeah, that type of show where, you know, like, the whole, for those of you who don't know, the conceit of Dickensian is, it's it was this, like, 2015, 2016 Christmas BBC adaptation of, like, all of Dickens's work at the same time, in the same way that, like, Mike Flanagan is adapting now all of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories into his Fall of the House of Usher miniseries and how Haunting of Bly Manor was a loose adaptation of all of Eeyore, or J- whatever his initials Henry are. Henry James. Yeah, his short stories. It was that but with Dickens where all of the plots and kind of like the prequels to the stories were happening at the same time. So Scrooge was in business, but Marley was still alive. And I think that would be really interesting if you took London, which Ankh-Morpork is just Victorian London. Like, it's the same way it's characterized in Dickens. Like, at the start of Bleak House, Dickens describes London as being shrouded in this fog, which he says, like, you would assume almost a dinosaur could come walking out of. You do that, you have the city be Ankh-Morpork, and you have the things happen at the same time so you would follow the stories concurrently so you'd be like you'd be in the unseen academy following the plot of equal rights and then slightly later the dragon from guards guards would start terrorizing the city and then you'd pass by 
I've forgotten his name again, Tepich. <laughs> would be like leaving just before this to head to Jelly Baby. I don't know. I think it would work really well. Terry Pratchett Estate, hit me up. I'm willing to negotiate. <laughs> I mean, I think it would take a lot of work to reconcile all of these books into one cohesive narrative, but I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Before we get to our end stats, I do want to talk about the ending. I don't know. It didn't feel like an ending. It was so rushed. Yeah. It felt like there was all this build-up to the dungeon dimensions, and then nothing. Yeah, then you just go, oh, well, we don't really believe in them, so, like, bye. <laughs> Granny Weatherwax and Archchancellor Cutangle got more of a resolution to their storyline than Esk did. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, now she's in the university, and she and Simon created a new branch of magic. Yeah. It's literally one page. It's less than a page of resolution. It feels like he was trying to do the same thing he did in The Light Fantastic, where he finished up the action and then gave Two Flower and Rincewind the send-off. And I guess in this scenario, Esk is equated with the luggage, because it's kind of like Esk needs to stay with one of them. For all my faults with The Light Fantastic and The Color of Magic, I think the resolution between Two Flowers' character and Rincewind's character is much better. It's much more well done than this one, because who cares about Arch-Chancellor Cut-Angle? Actually, that was a thing, just real quick. They described him as a 33-degree wizard, which seems that they're, like, organized like they're the bloody Freemasons. The point is, like, they're just a whole bunch of weird names, like the the blah de blah of the, like, incredibly complicated order name. I've already mentioned this, I've alluded to it earlier, but there's a lot about this book that seems to be retconned in later books. That's not to say that the characters are retconned, because Esk, for an example, does return in a much, much later book in the Discworld series. We are not going to see Esk again for a very long time, but we will see her again. But... As far as I can tell after this, there are no female wizards, like, at the university. Like, the the end of this book sounds like, oh, well, now there's going to be female wizards at the university. But the next book we're going to read is going to be sorcery. And as far as I know, they don't talk about, like, this sudden influx of female wizards into the university. And, again, and I also mentioned that there's no continuation of this relationship between Granny Weatherwax and Cut Ankle. There's no real explanation of how she got home or why she went home. It seems like there's definitely a soft reboot when it comes to sorcery and then later Weird Sisters. The other thing I wanted to mention, despite its retcon, there are a couple things that get pulled from this book. So the eighth son of the eighth son, which, by the way, I forgot to mention this earlier. There is a part where Esk does call herself the eighth son of an eighth son and then later corrects herself to daughter. Can I just say, I think that's a nice touch for a society whose magic is based around eight being a sacred number, that it's the eighth son of an eighth son instead of the seventh. That's a nice touch. Yes, and that's going to be very, very important for the next book we read, Sorcery. I actually did not plan that when I put this together, but as I was reading it, I was like, I forgot that they talk so much about the eighth son of an eighth son in this. Because it's foundational to the plot of sorcery. I'm very happy that we read this one first. And then the other thing that's important, they do mention sorcerers, which is obviously a big deal in the book Sorcery. 
There is one death sighting in this book. My edition, it's page eight. And it's when Drumbillet dies. I mean, that makes sense. Pretty typical. But yeah, Death shows up to take Drumbillet and they have an argument about reincarnation. Hmm. I thought it was interesting because like in Mort, they talk about like when Mort is doing Death's Rounds, he finds the monk who has like, you know, a season pass bus ticket basically where he's got the Discworld equivalent of a Buddhist reincarnation. But Death here tells Drumbillet that he wouldn't like it. Says, do you do you understand how terrible it is to be an ant? Yes, all the time. Which we do find out later that he does decide to take his chances and reincarnate as an ant, which I, I appreciated. I always appreciate pulling a full joke all the way through. Yeah, because then it's like they've discovered this like amazing secret and it's built in this sugar thing and no one ever saw it. And then uh, the next time the Ankh rose... It flooded the university. Yes. <laughs> and destroyed it. And just completely destroyed it. We also get what I think is classic death from the disc world, which is the whole, like, the white cat that's in the smithy. Looks like it's rubbing it itself against someone, but nobody's there. That's very common, right? Oh, yeah. The way they describe it, it's so eerie. And if you if this were your first read-through of a Discworld book, like if you never read Discworld and didn't know how death works, it'd be so ominous, you know? Where it's talking about the goats in the storm. Sometimes he would stop and throw his heavy staff into the air. It always came down pointing the same way, and the wizard would sigh, pick it up, and continue his squelchy progress. The storm walked around the hills on legs of lightning, shouting and grumbling. The wizard disappeared around the bend in the track and the goats went back to their damp grazing until something else caused them to look up. They stiffened, their eyes widening, their nostrils flaring. This was strange because there was nothing on the path, but the goats still watched it pass by until it was out of sight. It is pretty eerie. I was expecting it to be something worse than death, but that might also be because death in my mind actually isn't that creepy. You know, because yeah. he's he because we know him as a character now. But yeah, it would be very eerie if this was the first one you were really reading. There's only one footnote in Equal Rights, so it's the first and best footnote. Just like there was only one footnote in The Color of Magic, it occurs in my book on page 137, and it's basically another explanation of the Thieves Guild, which we've read before. It comes after the first person who tries to take Granny's purse. No one quite saw what happened to her eyes when she stared into his face or heard the words she whispered into his cowering ear, but he gave her back all her money, plus quite a lot of money belonging to other people, and before she let him go, had promised to have a shave, stand up straight, and be a better person for the rest of his life. By nightfall, Granny's description was circulated to all the chapter houses of the Guild of Thieves, Cut Purses, Housebreakers, and Allied Trades. Footnote. A very respectable body, which in fact represented the major law enforcement agency in the city. The reason for this is as follows. The guild was given an annual quota which represented a socially acceptable level of thefts, muggings, and assassinations, and in return saw to it in very definite and final ways that unofficial crime was not only rapidly stamped out, but knifed, garroted, dismembered, and left around the city in an assortment of paper bags as well. This was held to be a cheap and enlightened arrangement, except by those malcontents who were actually mugged or assassinated and refused to see it as their social duty, and it enabled the city's thieves to plan a decent career structure, entrance examinations, and codes of conduct similar to those adopted by the city's other professions, 
which, the gap not being very wide in any case, they rapidly came to resemble. Thoughts about that footnote? It's more of the same, really. I mean, to be fair, this is like the third book. We've read this after we've read Guards, Guards. We've read it afterwards, even though this book came out before. So now we're going into it being like, we know the Thieves' Guild, but if you read these as they were published or as they came out, then you wouldn't really know about the Thieves' Guild. So True. True. What was the thing that made you laugh out loud in this book? I'm going to go with banter on the broom between Cut Angle and Granny Weatherwax, just because it's like, it's such old couple bickering. I'm I'm a stickler for, or, or, or I'm such a sucker even, for old couple bickering in fiction. It's so fun. I'm just going to tell you this as a preview. You're going to love Lords and Ladies. Oh? You will. Yes. Woo! There's a scene where Granny is talking about how she has a problem finding human brains, but has no problem picking out animal brains. And she said, animal minds are simple and therefore sharp. Animals never spend time dividing experience into little bits and speculating about all the bits they've missed. The whole panoply of the universe has been neatly expressed to them as things to A, mate with, B, eat, C, run away from, and D, rocks. I don't know why the the inclusion of D, rocks, just, like, made me laugh until I was, like, crying. But, I don't know. It just tickled me. It tickled me. What was the thing that made you think, Nigel? This might be a weird one, but the lore. Because, like, obviously, it's a fantasy thing. It plays on sword and sorcery tropes. So, like, there is no precedent in fantasy lore to have a female wizard. But also because, like, lore, L-O-R-E, is just someone with a West Country accent saying the word law, L-A-W. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, like, ooh, R, that's the lore. I had not thought about that at all, that connection. Ah, like when I I was talking to Lozzie about this, we were talking and he was like, oh yeah, you know, you're you're bringing your uh, experience as Irish, being Irish being the only part of your personality (laughs) to (laughs) to Naniogs. And it's like, I picked up on that straight away because it's like, that's just how people talk around here. I love that though. I mean, it's not something I would have obviously noticed because I'm not as familiar with those accents, but I do like that. Like the the transposition between lore and law. Like it's I mean it's patriarchal, right? It's the patriarchy. It's the systems. It's the way things have always been done. Yeah, then at the end they're all like when they're in the library after Simon and Esk come back from the dungeon dimensions, they're like, well how is she a wizard? And then Treatle is like, well they changed the lore. Yeah, they changed the lore. They changed the law. I, I I love that. That's great. I really loved, and by loved, I mean it made me, like, emotional. The scene where she has the dream about being locked out of the university, right? It's like this castle of darkness because she's never seen the university before. She's locked out and she can't get in. And then it says, from the battlements above, she could hear the sound of sniggering. Laughter wouldn't have been so bad, especially an impressive demonic laugh with lots of echo, but this was just sniggering. It went on for a long time. It was one of the most unpleasant sounds Esk had ever heard. If you've ever been on the brunt end of misogyny, you know that there's, like, a real humiliation to it. It's not even a proper laugh. It's just a snigger, right? And it's at your expense. That was the part of the book that I felt the most connection to. I didn't feel a lot of connection to some of the other more clumsy ways of talking about 
feminism, but I did really connect with that particular aspect. That and the part where Esk is talking to the Zunes and she's like, well, I can do things that are helpful. And then she lists all the different things that Nanny has taught her how to do. And it's all very domestic Mm. work, but it's all very impressive domestic work. You know, it's the stuff that witches do, right? And to me, that also felt very validating to be like, no, like this work is valuable. It is something that I know how to do and it's something that I can trade. And it's something that people rely on, but they don't value it. That, I thought, was also very insightful. Say what you will about the Zunes. You know, they're a culture like the Romani or Minkara people where trades and bartering and your inherent skills as a person and the things you can do are much more valued than in a capitalist society. You gotta be a person with a USP. I don't know. Like I said, domestic labor is so gendered in a lot of ways. And like to be able to say like, no, like you need this to survive. We can't just hide it away underneath, you know, in the cellars and in the kitchens and pretend that it doesn't happen because it's not special or cool enough or male enough. So next episode, we are going to hang around the Unseen University for another book, Sorcery, the last Discworld book of the 80s. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? So you can find me on my podcasts, Hyperfixations and Archive Admirers, wherever you're listening to this podcast, actually. They're on social media at HyperfixationsP on Twitter and HyperfixationsPod on Instagram for Hyperfixations. And then Archive Admirers is at Admirers Archive on Twitter or archiveadmirers.tumblr.com. And then I'm Spicy Nigel on Twitter, where recently I have tweeted about it is impossible to ride a horse. I was going to ask you if you had tried to ride a horse recently and if that's why you had tweeted that. (laughs) It seemed like a very mysterious tweet. Nope. It's based off of uh, me mishearing the punchline to a joke. Story time. One of my coworkers came into the warehouse at work today while we were while the radio was on and simply having a wonderful Christmas time was on. He Horrible said, Do you song. Want to know a fun fact about this song, huh? Horrible song. Continue. Yeah. He said, "Do you want to know a fun fact about this song?" And I said, "Yeah." And he, what he actually said was, "It's impossible to write a worse song." What I thought he had come in and said was, "Apropos of nothing, do you want to know a fun fact about this song?" Yeah, sure. And then he had just gone, "It's impossible to ride a horse." <laughs> Honestly, I feel like that might be a better punchline. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I would do. Non sequitur. I do that often. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, which is on Twitter at Monkey Backlog and on our website at www.monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Currently, Monkey Off My Backlog is releasing a series The 13 Days of X-Men, in which we every day release an episode where we review a film from the Fox X-Men franchise, and actually through completely no planning of my own, the same day that this episode of of Nanny Ogg's Book Club airs, we release the episode that you guessed on, Nigel, which is the Logan episode. Yeah, no, it it was just really funny because I did not plan that at all, and then as I was like setting up the schedule, I was like, oh, yeah, the Equal Rights episode's gonna come out the same day as the Logan episode, and Nigel is on both. So, yay! You can find Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Twitter 
at Nanny's Book Club. You can find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please read us out, Nigel. I mean, there's lots they can learn, I'm sure. Granny considered this. Certainly, the privy needed a good seeing to before the weather got too warm, and the goat shed was ripe for the mucking out by spring. Digging over the herb bed was a chore, too. The bedroom ceiling was a disgrace, and some of the tiles needed fixing. Practical things, she said thoughtfully. Absolutely, said Cutangle. Mm. Well, I'll think about it, said Granny, dimly aware that one should never go too far on a first date. Perhaps you would care to dine with me this evening and let me know, said Cutangle, his eyes agleam. What's to eat? Cold meat and potatoes. There was. Mrs. Whitlow had done her work well. Esk and Simon went on to develop a whole new type of magic that no one could exactly understand, but which nevertheless everyone considered very worthwhile and somehow comforting. Perhaps more importantly, the ants used all the sugar lumps they could steal to build a similar sugar pyramid in one of the hollow walls, in which, with great ceremony, they entombed the mummified body of a dead queen. On the wall of one tiny hidden chamber they inscribed, in insect hieroglyphics, the true secret of longevity. They got it absolutely right and it would probably have important implications for the universe if it hadn't, next time the university flooded, been completely washed away. The end.